0: Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on SiriusXM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. And I made it my business this year to spend more time with people who are actually doing the work. You know, um, they don't get enough attention because they're busy. You know, they're busy doing the work. So we don't see them on all of the who has time to be on TV except people who have time to be on TV. So So I'm like reaching out. So I reached out to this woman on Twitter and I was like, would you come? Would you come on the show? She is a water warrior. We're going to find out what that is. Educator, entrepreneur, human rights activist and president and CEO of We the People of Detroit. Y'all, the D is in the building. Let me welcome Monica Lewis Patrick to the Karen Hunter show. Hello.
1: Hey, Uh, Professor Karen Hunter, I can't tell you what an honor and a privilege this is. Uh my office has been buzzing. My mama's been calling. Uh people are trying to make sure they tune in for this show. Listen,
0: um, I'm buzzing because again, you know, I talk for you know, I'm on here, I do other things, but you know, this is the microphone. You work. Yes, ma'am. So walk us through, you know, are you are you born and bred in Detroit? Coleman Young? Are you yeah. from that? The legacy of Coleman Young? Are we in that?
1: Well, I'm in that legacy, but not directly. I consider myself an adopted Detroiter, originally from a little small town called Kingsport, Tennessee, uh, located in Northeast Tennessee, uh, not that far from Knoxville, for those that may not know the state well. Uh, But my family has a long legacy in the city. Uh, The great baseball player and legend himself, Willie Horton, is my grandfather's baby brother, one of 18 children. Uh, My grandfather is his seventh oldest brother. And then uh, a little bit close to there, my grandfather's twin sister, my Aunt Faye, was married to Dr. Julius Griffith, who was a part of SCLC. Uh, He was a part of helping Dr. King uh, draft his speech, the mountaintop speech. And then he went on to be a part of becoming the vice president of marketing for Motown for about 25 years. And so we consider our roots to run deep from down in Tennessee and Alabama and through Mississippi and parts of North Carolina, but all the roads lead to, lead to Detroit.
0: So for you, uh, when did you, when did you uh, show up, Ms. Monica Lewis-Patrick in Detroit?
1: Well, I moved to Detroit in 2008 as I was going through a divorce, had finished grad school and my youngest daughter had been left on my steps at eight weeks old. And so uh, I decided at that point, I had just, uh, you know, uh, turned 40 a couple of years before that and felt like that it was a moment that I really needed to decide the things that were good for my spirit and good for my family. And one of the things I had always wanted to do as I grew up in the South, had always wanted to live in Detroit. And so my mother thought I lost my mind in 2008 when I moved to Detroit with my two youngest daughters uh, in a financial downturn across the nation. Detroit was struggling on every level And I found such a belovedness and a welcoming space uh, that I've never looked back.
0: So I got questions. So who left your daughter on your doorstep?
1: Uh, A distant relative of ours uh, basically came and and wanted us to keep the baby just for a couple of hours while she went to look for a job. Uh, And now that baby is 20 years old. So she never came back. She never came back. But uh, one of those things we always do in our families Well, She knew Uh, where
0: she could go. She knew the baby would be well taken care of, obviously. Um, And Mm -hmm. as as you belovedly talk about Detroit, I think about all of the neighborhoods that we that we live in. And most of them have that story. You know, most of them have that community but they don't have the resources. And it's, it's curious to me and the people that live there get blamed for the fact that there are no resources in these places as Mm. if it's your fault. Like you did something, there's something deficient, but it's really by design. So you coming from, you know, from the South to Detroit, a place that you wanted to live, what was the biggest challenge that you found living in a city like Detroit?
1: Well, one of the things that really shook me to my core was to find out the intentionality that had gone into divesting from public education, that there had been an intentional dismantlement of public education in Detroit. And of course, I had only been here a couple of weeks, uh, getting my daughters settled into school. And uh, within a couple of weeks, I was in the middle of the throes of that fight for public education and to be able to deny mural control. And of course, under that, uh, at the time, there was a lot of corporate interests vying for Dave Bing to be able to take over Detroit public schools. Well, in my opinion, they weren't doing such a good job of running the city. Why would we want to give them our children? And so uh, through the lens of many amazing women, especially women of color in this city, we joined ranks and showed up for five weeks resisting mayoral control. And we beat back uh, all of those special interest dollars that went into mayoral control. But quickly after that, I found that it wasn't just about controlling the dollars that went into public education, but it was about controlling all the dollars that go into black and brown communities. And so we quickly shifted and pivoted to fight what was happening around the contrived bankrupting of the city of Detroit. Many of the women that I had grown to love and respect and know were the very same women and families that were finding themselves uh, actually having their pensions taken and their healthcare stolen. And then, of course, quickly after that, what we realized was that the crown jewel of the city, which is the water department, the water and sewage department for the city of Detroit, was really what was in their crosshairs, that they really wanted to take over one of the largest municipal uh, water systems in North America. And one of the most successful, I may add, up until the late 1990s, we had an award-winning system that actually was one of the best in the world not just in America, but internationally known for producing quality water. And so that fight was the fight that really changed my life. And that is the fight that I'm dedicated to do is that I'm determined that in my, on my watch, we will deliver clean, safe, and affordable water for every human being, not just those that are classified, not those that we like or choose to serve, but every person deserves that right. I
0: love it. Monica Lewis-Patrick is her name. We the people we the people of detroit.com we the people of detroit.com just down the road a bit is flint right and we watched mm-hmm. that 8 years ago 7 8 years ago uh yeah. <laughs> the horror of and it's still not fixed by the way
1: that's right
0: so your 2008 flint has happened already
1: did well you- flint Flint really was a result of them rushing to steal Detroit's water and sewage department. See, we have to put it in context. The world knows of the Flint water crisis, but many of them don't know or understand what triggered the Flint water crisis. Uh, Under the leadership of the former governor, Rick Snyder, uh, he basically implemented a very austerity, uh, a very intense austerity measure called emergency management. And emergency management basically is a law, and it's still on the books, mind you. So even though we have a trifecta in in Michigan, we have a governor that's democratically leaning, a legislative body democratically leaning, we still have this very racist austerity measure on the books called emergency management. It can set aside democratic processes, it can set aside elected officials, it can set aside uh, 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 union contracts, All of the things that we value as part of the democratic process, it can actually nullify or set aside. And so through that fight, what we found from Rick Snyder that in his haste to steal the Detroit Water and Sewage Department in order to regionalize it under the Great Lakes Water Authority, one of the things he had to do is remove the community of Flint off of this municipal system in order to weaken Detroit for this bankruptcy or contrived bankrupting of Detroit. Detroit was forced in 1955 to build out a water infrastructure system that provides water to 40% of the population, the entire population of the state of Michigan. Mm -hmm. But you and I both know Professor Hunter, these things don't happen in isolation. It's usually through collaboration and historical racist policies. And so what we know is in 1955, the city of Detroit was legislated to build out this system because we were the only municipality with the bonding capacity to do so. What was happening at the same time is that what you were seeing all across the country, oftentimes we're credited with the 1967 rebellion, but we don't give enough credit to the white crime and the white white rioting that was happening in the 40s and the 50s. We also don't talk enough about the redlining that actually came into effect because of the housing policies, racist housing policies in this country that we're still living with the afterthrows of. So much of what happened in Detroit and Flint is that simultaneously you had an emergency manager that was an unelected, unqualified, unconstitutional person put over both municipalities in order to drive us into this despair and divestment that is now weakened both communities and left us with water that is either unaffordable or that cannot be consumed. Flint is paying some of the highest water rates in the country to the tune of about 320% markup. When you look at Detroit, Detroit's markup is about 288%. But when you look across the state of Michigan, and many times this is what the Black matriarch is responsible to do. We don't even have to just look at just what's happening to our community. We have to also include the humanity of other communities. And we were able to demonstrate that even for those low-income white folks in rural communities across Michigan, their water rates have gone up 188%. So all of this is driving deep disparity. And of course, when you talk about it, it gets racialized as somehow Detroit didn't pay its fair share, or we're not working hard enough, or somehow we're fat, happy, and lazy. But what we know is that when the city of Detroit, which was ran up until the last quarter of a century, most of it was ran by predominantly black folks, is that what we found is that until the Flint water crisis, we never poisoned anybody when it was under public control. It's Mm -hmm. only been when it's been forced into a regional authority, forced into this quasi-public-private enterprise, that we've seen these missteps happen. And this is where we are today. This is why you still have poison water coming out of the tap in Flint and unaffordable water coming out, really not coming out of the taps in Detroit, because we're now on the cusp of returning to massive water shutoffs as of January 1st.
0: Oh, my goodness. Uh, Monica Lewis, Patrick, the reason why I really wanted you to come on, first of all, thank you for the history lesson. And I was wrong with the dates. Um, It's 2008 free dates. What what we know publicly is the Flint water crisis. Um, You were a mother, you know, a regular person, a citizen. You're not a politician. Nobody. You weren't elected. What made you? And and it's for everyone listening, because I, I say this every day. We all live someplace. We all live someplace and if your the place in which you live is challenged, if your neighborhood is challenged, what can you do to, to fix that? And, or, or together, how do you galvanize your community to make wherever you live a better place, a haven for you and your family? What, what was the first step that you, like, how did you even know where to go, Monica? What, what did you do?
1: Well, I, I would say this, I have grown up in a family of revolutionary leaders. Uh, My grandparents, both grandparents, my grandmother on both sides, paternal and maternal. Uh, One grandmother was very church oriented and she was always organizing some activity to get young people in church. Uh, My other grandmother was more of the speakeasy, uh, liquor house kind of grandparent, where there was always somebody stopping by, getting something to eat and getting a drink. But she used it as an organizing tool for those persons that didn't go to church. They weren't part of those traditional circles. And what I saw with both of those women is they loved their communities to life, and they never allowed us as their children to see it as just somebody else's responsibility. My grandmother's thing was, if you walked by and saw paper on the ground, it was your job to pick it up. And if she saw you pass by it and not pick it up, she'd call you back to pick it up. So it's been that sort of deputizing of ourselves as the honorable Councilwoman Joanne Watson often talks about, we can't wait on someone to rescue us. We are saving ourselves and we're doing it daily and we're doing it through a lens of love and through self-determination and cooperative work. So I'm excited about the things that I get to experience my community, loving on each other and making sure each other has water. This is not from a place of of deficiency and failure and, and not good enough. We are more than enough, and that's what I speak. I speak that life that my grandmama spoke on me and my mama spoke on me. My mother's a 27 year veteran from the US Army. Uh, She's a retired master sergeant. She served in her union for over 20 years as a union steward. She's retired over 33 years from the Veterans Administration. And even now at 78 years old, she can be called up by her government because this black woman knows how to put up a surgical unit in a war zone. And what does she do? She constantly is taking blood pressures, doing health checks with her neighbors, making sure that people don't understand their medical directions. She's facilitating that. But she also is a critical part of any political action that happens in our community. So the thing that they taught me is don't you wait. You better get up today and do all that you can to make all the difference that you can today. So I'm working on my little corner doctor.
0: I see it. Monica Lewis Patrick, we the people of Detroit.com. When did that organization start?
1: Oh my goodness. Uh, one of the mo- most profound moments that I saw is that as we as mothers and grandmothers were lining up to go to these city council meetings to really put on the public record our opposition to mural control, I, I met these other four women uh, who were just as passionate and more knowledgeable and had been in the city, many of them their whole lives, Uh, 94-year-old Mama Chris Griffith set up the first methadone clinic in the city of Detroit under the leadership of the Honorable Coleman Alexander Young. Uh, The amazing uh, Cecily McClellan, who at 70 years old is still leading our water relief work here at We the People of Detroit, She was the person as a teenager that was a part of changing uh, Eastern High School here in Detroit to the name of Martin Luther King High School here in Detroit. So as a teenager, she was doing these revolutionary things. She also was a critical part of implementing the first attempt by the great council member, Joanne Watson and the late great Marianne Mahaffey because the first water affordability policy in the nation was drafted here in the city of Detroit. Well, Cecily McClellan was the person that actually implemented and operationalized that plan. Uh, When you look at Deborah Taylor, Deborah Taylor, Deborah Taylor, that bad Deborah Taylor, (laughs) she was the linchpin for many of us in helping lift the Flint water crisis story to national acclaim she was the one that went to flint from 2014 into 2015 organizing over a hundred stories of her community because deborah's not a native detroiter she's a native flintstone but she organized those stories wrecked her car twice over that winter but those stories got lifted by a journalist by the name of Kirk guyette Kirk guyette took those stories he lifted them to the attention of Rachel Maddows. that story made national news, but it was that little home homegirl by the name of Deborah Taylor that organized those voices to create that crescendo. And then the last person I'll say, but definitely not least, is Aurora Harris, Professor Aurora Harris. She's a professor of African-American studies and literature. She's an author. She's a genius. And she is one of the people that keeps us connected to the indigenous work that has happened in our community. So I can't say enough about those women. I'm the youngest among them. I'm the least among them. They are my sheroes. They are the people that make we the people of Detroit go every day as hard as we go.
0: What do you guys need? Monica Lewis Patrick is here. She is the CEO uh, and president of We the People of Detroit. You can follow them at We the People, D-E-T, on the Twitters. That's where I found her. Uh, how, what do you need and how do we get involved, those of us who live in Detroit and those of us who don't live in Detroit but just want to empower, empower what you're doing?
1: Yes, ma'am, I need a couple of things. First of all, I need the family to understand that water insecurity, water affordability, lack of water access, water quality is not just a Detroit only issue. It's a national security issue. Right now, the country is looking at millions of families that are taxed with the inability to just afford their water. When you look at places like Detroit where water rates have gone up over 200% in less than a, a decade and a half, When you look at Toledo down the street, where water rates have doubled in about 14 months, when you look at Chicago over the last nine years, water rates have tripled in Chicago over the last nine years. Uh, If you go to the West Coast, you're seeing droughts, you're seeing issues in terms of lack of access, uh, major issues of quality. If you go to uh, places where the tribes and uh, Native Americans are, many times those persons have been trafficking and trucking in water from anywhere from 20 to 30 to 40 years or more because the quality is low. And many times in tribal communities, they do not even have the basic infrastructure for being able to distribute drinking water nor address their sewage needs. And so what we need is we need a national uh, commitment to ensure that every human life has access to clean, safe, affordable water. Right now, there is no statute or law codified in the U.S. that guarantees you access to water. But what we know, our basic common sense, as my grandmother would say, my good old horse sense tells me that if 80% of my body is made up of water, somehow there is a relationship that I must not only have with water, but that I must keep with water. So water is necessary for life. What we found out during the pandemic and prior to the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, Detroit sits in southeastern Michigan. And at that time in 2016, it was documented that we sit in the highest concentration of hepatitis A in American history. So there had never been any documentation to the degree of the hepatitis outbreak that we were experiencing in Southeastern Michigan. As we were seeing from 2014 up until the pandemic, over 171,000 households shut off from water just in Detroit. And what we know is that if you read the Mayo Clinic's uh, definitions of hepatitis A and what are some of the drivers Many times, what the drivers are is the inability to properly sanitize and wash your, out your hands. What we found in Michigan is a very racist narrative of somehow claiming that there were all of these Black folks that got released from prison. And because they were imprisoned, they were somehow participating in same-sex relationships and therefore contaminating the entire community with hepatitis A. Well, it was the research that we, the people of Detroit, the community research collective, the very common people that we talk about every day, just like me, who were able to deputize themselves and work with artists and scholars and professionals in the area of public health and water to put together research called Mapping the Research, Mapping the Water Crisis. Mapping the Water Crisis is a book that is all, uh, available on the website for we the people of Detroit. But what it does, it details the history, it talks about what, what the causation of the inequity of the burden of water debt on the residents of Detroit. It also sort of gives you a very visual impact of what this means right now in terms of not only the austerity, but then the fact that Detroiters are still subsidizing over 70 municipalities and townships even until this day. So the bankruptcy didn't rid us of our debt. It just transferred the burden of the debt only onto the residents of Detroit in order to shift the infrastructure itself, the property, to this external entity called an authority. So what we have now is we have modern day share uh, We're pretty much uh, dealing with water apartheid, where there are certain folks that have access to the water source and others that don't. How is it that we sit on over 20% of the world's fresh water? Over 20% of the world's fresh water. How is it that Detroit provides water to 40% of our infrastructure, 40% of the state of Michigan? But you have laws on the books that say if you don't have running water for 72 hours, you can have your children taken. Well, Professor Hunter, guess where one of the few places that they've exercised this law of taking children for not having access to water is? Come on in the city of detroit so we've actually had either the threat or actually having our children taken because we cannot afford water rates that have gone up and we have no control over this is the catcher this is the big big catcher is that we are forced and legislated by the state of michigan to sell water through this infrastructure wholesale so everybody that receives access to the water pays wholesale But the group that's relegated to pay retail for that water, the very owners of the infrastructure, the residents of Detroit pay retail for that water. And then you have these 126 municipalities that are receiving water from our infrastructure, and they are marking water rates of anywhere from 100 to 1,000%. And, of course, we become the very convenient excuse for this. Well, of course, we're all paying for Detroit's bankruptcy. Well, 80 percent of the Detroit bankruptcy was on the backs of pensioners. So, no, you're not. No, you're not.
0: Come on with the truth. And this is what is required to not uh, allow for the narrative, the false narrative, the gaslighting to go on. And we need people, more people to to just pick up their mat. I mean, you know, so that all of us can, can be free, right. You know, four, four women in Detroit started this organization, but I'm sure that now there's a a groundswell of support, right? There's a groundswell of support for what you're doing, Monica Lewis, Patrick, I'm imagining you got a lot of support.
1: There's a groundswell of support, but what has happened is we often see, we have to take our message outside of the bubble. So we have spent years, one just clarifying that there's a difference between water assistance and water affordability. Water assistance is a temporary fix for those that may be having a temporary financial cash flow issue. So it's a temporary fix, which usually means it's a small pot of money. But when you have persons in your community, and we know this is a case all across the nation, we've done research with PolicyLink, with US Water Alliance and the like, some of the biggest entities in the nation that work on these issues. And what they are finding is they're in alignment with community. That you cannot have massive segments of the community shut off from water and then still have a community that can compete and that can achieve. And so what we're seeing is that in segments of our community, we were able to collaborate with Henry Ford Health Systems and the Global Health Initiative They were able to look at some of our water shutoff data and some of our mapping, and they were able to place over top of that over 35,000 cases from just Henry Ford Health Systems. And what they found through their ER data is that even if you live on a block where you've been able to keep your water on, but one person on your block cannot afford their water, it increases the probability of you contracting a waterborne disease by 150%. And so what we know is that many times these kinds of health impacts only show up in communities or countries that we consider third world, but you actually have third world conditions right here in the good old U.S. of A. And so what has happened is communities like ours, it was community uh, uh, citizens research collaboratives like ours at the CRC and in Flint that really was able to bring forth the qualitative data that was necessary to expose the crime. But then the question has to be, once we have the information, what do we do with that information? And information can only be power if we make it have powerful results. And so what we've been able to do is expose that there is a national need to address the disparities around water. We are pushing at the federal level and have been extremely successful in getting an allocation of funding for federal infrastructure because that's one piece. Many of the urban cores are in communities that have been a part of the oldest part of the infrastructure. Detroit's water system is over 100 years old. We actually have pipes that are made out of wood logs that are still rendering water today. Wood logs. Then you have to look at the period of time in which we had galvanized metal and iron and things of that nature. So all of that kind of dated and antiquated Infrastructure is still in the grounds, delivering water today. The other thing that we've had to make sure that people know is that our babies cannot be left out of this conversation. I, I don't know, Doc, I'm, I'm probably much older than you, but mm-hmm. I remember the time when Smokey the Bear would tell us that we didn't want to be a fire bug, or then you'd have the little raccoon tell you, you didn't want to be a litter bug. Well, we've got to start early training our babies to value water. First of all, what we've learned from indigenous folks and from Africans, is that water was here way before we were here, before there was light. If for those that are spiritual and religious and come from the Christian doctrine, before God even spoke light, there was water. And so when we talk about water from a place of power and a place of of being, water has a right to be uninhibited by human beings all by itself. It does have that right. But if we're going to be in concert with Mother Earth, if we're going to be in cooperation with Mother Earth, then part of that has to be, how do we extract from Mother Earth what we need without disturbing and destroying Earth? How do we build out seven and ten generations beyond us? And so what we've done at We the People of Detroit is invested tremendously in educating our babies and understanding the science of water, the spirit of water, the sociology of water, the policies of water, career paths connected to water, and then understanding, too, that collectively they have power if they will build with their watershed and their water infrastructure systems. So we have babies in Flint. They created the first water testing lab in the nation with the Flint Development Center. We have here in Detroit some of the babies that are using uh uh what is it the uh they're using their ability to communicate create music and animation as a way to telegraph this information they're also using 3d printing capacity to look for innovative ways to filter water so we're not waiting we're not waiting guys. no
0: and we can't wait we can't wait or else we'll you know not have water uh, mm-hmm. I need y'all to go to, we, the people of com. If you are in Detroit, I want you to get involved. Click on that. If you're not in Detroit, but you know, you care about water because we are going to be the saviors of ourselves. Donate. It's right there on the front page. Donate, take the pledge, donate. If you're not in Detroit, donate. If you are in Detroit, get involved because, uh, you know, we take for granted sometimes that we turn on our spigot water comes out, but it doesn't, it doesn't does not always have to be that way. And the water that comes out, we shouldn't have to pay a whole lot for it. And it should be clean enough to, to nourish our bodies inside and out. So uh, the work that Monica Lewis, Patrick, and these other ladies, evoke their names again, please, especially the 94 yeah, year uh, olds
1: Leslie McClellan, Deborah Taylor, Professor Aurora Harris, Mama Chris Griffith. Those are the founders. But and Dr. Monica- Let me just set the record straight. Our work started in 2008, but there is a legacy and body of work that comes out of Detroit that supersedes us. We would be remiss if we did not acknowledge one of our elders, the Honorable Councilwoman Joanne Watson, who was one of the architects of creating the first policy in the nation, along with Marianne Mahaffey, also People's Water Board and Michigan Welfare Rights. Those organizations have definitely been leading on this issue.
0: Listen, and and that makes it even special that you're not just out here taking credit. You ain't even call me. I reached out to you. You, you, Again, you know, that's what this is supposed to look like, uh, people doing the work. So we're going to support the things that you're doing, uh, Monica Lewis, Patrick. And if you need to come back for any reason, you know where to reach me. I appreciate you, and I appreciate all of the work that is being done on behalf of the people in Detroit and beyond.